Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Caleb. This is Wayne. And my name is Chad. All right. So, Caleb, who are you and how long have you gamed? Oh, have you been hiding man. in the dark annals of Dan's gigantic house? Yeah, I think we what? found it by the stables. Right. I heard the uh, the lawnmowers going off, and I figured I should come out uh, eventually. Uh, so, yeah, I've been gaming since I was 11-ish, 10 or 11-ish, uh, back in my early young age. Spent most of my time in Indianapolis, and now moved out out here to St. Louis. Started out playing in 3.0 uh, D&D, and then moved on through 3.5, 3.75, all that kind of stuff. It's always amazing to me hearing the stories about everyone starting gaming as a kid. Because mm-hmm. for me, it was my mid to late 20s. I did, never ran into gamers growing up. I didn't know anything about gaming. I didn't have anybody that lived near me because I was on the top of a hill two miles outside of the city limits. So, like, the idea of mm-hmm. getting into this hobby that young, particularly for, like, a D&D that was mm-hmm. a, like, a rules-heavy game in those earlier editions, that just blows my mind about how do you even get started. My favorite getting started story, I worked with a guy. He was a senior citizen, Vietnam vet, tired auto mechanic, real man's man, wasn't mm-hmm. a nerd or anything, and he had a son. And his young son, they were, like, in a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And they, they they had this ongoing conversation of, we need to start a hobby. We need to do something that we can do together. Let's go to the bookstore. Maybe we'll find mm-hmm. a book, you know, like on woodworking, or we'll find a, a book on something like that, some hobby we could do together. And again, they're not geeks, right? They're they're not nerd. I mean, they maybe watch Star Trek, and that's about it. Never even heard of role-playing games before. And this was and meth life. really hadn't hit big yet. Not yet. No, no. So going home and meth chefing wasn't yeah. really an option. Right. And so this was early 80s. And they're looking around the store, and there's a hardcover big book with a big ass freaking dragon on it, or something. I because I don't know which edition that was. I don't know what year it was. It's probably the demon, the yeah, demon cover with the gold demon. cup. And... Yeah, might have been the guy with the sword. Probably not yeah, the, guy yeah, with the yeah. sword, but yeah, it was. It was a cool looking fantasy cover, and they're like, "Wow, what is this?" And they start flipping through it, and mm-hmm. they're like, "Oh, this is a game. This whole book is a game." And they're like, "Wow, well, let's do this." Okay, yep. and they were hard, they're hardcore gamers, man. Been yeah, ever yeah. Since. yeah. I just can't imagine not having any introduction to the hobby, picking up a game, looking through it, and understanding it. Yeah, because oh, I remember yeah. the books being daunting before I had played mm-hmm. and before I'd actually tried out some more systems. So, like that whole idea of picking up the book and just reading it and immediately jumping into a game. Yeah, I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I mean the base concept is so simple. It's mm-hmm. storytelling with a framework. That's it. That's all it is. But in actuality, in practice, it's very alien. It's very daunting. It is not consumer entertainment. It is a participatory entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's very different for a lot of people. You know, now that I think about it, because Wayne's talking about how daunting a role-playing book is, mm-hmm. there was a pretty consistent flow to every role-playing book that I owned from that period of time. And they all went something like this. There's an introduction at the start that's basically, what is a role-playing game? What is this hobby all about? Then after that, you typically went right into character creation. What is it I can be in this world? And then it was thereafter that it started explaining, now that you have a sense of what role-playing is, and you have a sense of Mm -hmm. what you can be, now here's how you play the game. And that might consist of GMing tips or equipment charts or random charts of other things or maps or whatever it was, but you ended up having all of this other stuff 
that explain the setting and how you do things. I think one of the more interesting ones was how the fastest Star Trek did it, mm-hmm. at least the edition that I owned, where the role-playing game was a box set, and inside was four books, and each had a different person in mind or a different set of circumstances in mind. One was the ship combat rules, which was actually a standalone game. It was just included in mine because I had a deluxe edition. All right, so book number four we'll just drop from the list. Let's talk about the other three. The other three was there something called the Cadets Orientation Sourcebook, and it was a setting guide to Star Trek. So if you knew nothing about Star Trek, mm-hmm. here's a picture of a tricorder and a paragraph on no game stats. Mm-hmm. Just this is what a tricorder yeah. is. Here's a phaser, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you got to the same the thing. Future, for, the aliens, yeah. the Federation. Here's, yeah. here's what a Vulcan is. Here's yeah. what an Edoin is. Here's what a... It's not a story about war. It's about exploration and it was, science. And, it's like those expansion books that came out that were like, here's all the information about the world yeah. in your setting books mm-hmm. and not here's the book about yeah. how to play the game. It's so, here's the story. Then yeah. the second book, I want to say, was something like The Officer or something or other. And that was the one that actually walked you through character creation Mm. and playing the game at the character level. So here's how you make your character, and here's how you then play that character in the game. So here's how you take an action. Here's the type of equipment you can have, everything that you need as a player. And then there was a third book that was, I don't remember the title of this one at all, but it was the Game Master book. So like, here's how you run an adventure. If you need random charts, here's how to randomly roll up a star system and make sure you draw lots of maps. Yeah, make sure you draw. <laughs> I actually did recommend that. It was terrible advice, but it did recommend <laughs> it. It gave you stuff for rolling up uh, NPCs on the fly. It gave you base templates for some of the major characters that had appeared up to that point as reference mm-hmm. material. It gave you charts for rolling up planets and civilizations and things that they could encounter, and it gave suggestions on plots and such. But, you know, when the interesting thing about all of these, okay, so whether it's a Star Trek game that had the three books or most games that came in one to two books, and of course, I guess D&D also came in the famous three, which is the player's guide, the GM's guide, and then the monster manual. Mm-hmm. So then I guess a fourth one of usually a setting book. But they were always pretty easy to digest. There were not any games, at least that I owned. I'm not going to say they didn't exist. There were no games that I owned where... I opened the front cover and started going page by page by page and felt lost. It was always very well thought out in terms of being spoon-fed to you until you didn't even realize you were eating a full meal, as long as you stuck with it and weren't intimidated by the size of the book. It is not until more recently that I personally, let me stress this, I'm not Mm -hmm. speaking about all products, Mm -hmm. but it's not until more recently that I personally have owned books where three pages in, it's word salad. Mm-hmm. I just have no idea what's even going on anymore. Right. And this part references something later on, and then something later on references something way back here. And it's just these ideas that you're just getting, like, it's Quentin Tarantino wrote the book. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all <laughs> out of order and doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense and has no flow to it. And maybe by the end, you just kind of have, it coalesces in your yeah. mind because it certainly didn't coalesce. Sure, well, maybe it, you get a lot of page number references these days. Yeah, it maybe coalesces right. in your mind, or at least you have to pretend like it did <laughs> so you don't look stupid. And the worst offender that I own, that I'm going to point to right now, 
Is Battletech a time of war? The role-playing system for the current edition of Battletech. It is a mess. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say it's a useless role-playing game. I don't know. Maybe it's great. Good <laughs> luck figuring it out. <laughs> and yeah. it's it's not just that it's complicated. Because I can pick up the rules for the Battletech board game. Mm-hmm. In Total Warfare is the name of the book, current edition of the rules for that. And it does a really good job of easing you into the rules. Previous editions of the role-playing game for Battletech did that. MechWarrior 2nd Edition was great. It's still my preferred edition. But holy crap, I have no idea what's going on with the time of war. But wait, anyways, back to your point. <laughs> I was never intimidated by the size of a role-playing game because they always did such a wonderful job of teaching you from the ground up, here's what you're doing. I never felt profoundly lost in the course of reading a game book. Hmm. And I haven't really looked at those older books. I mean, I've never seen a D&D book. I've seen them. I've never held and looked through a D&D book before 3rd edition. Well, you need to come over to my place. And we'll, <laughs> we'll go through a couple books. But 1st edition and 2nd edition, I will I, I'll attest to because I've gone through and played those over the over the years back. I kind of started out at 3.0, 3.5 because that was what was available. And then I rolled back because I was very interested in those older games because I actually started out my first few sessions of games were a mixture of Tunnels and Trolls and I forget the name, it was like Ghouls and Goblins or some sort of other really old game system. And we literally had papers of charts that we had handwritten because we didn't have the books. Mm. We, did, we couldn't afford the books. And we also couldn't bring them in the house. Yeah. So uh, oh, I had the same thing. Yeah. My first several role-playing games, I made up. Mm-hmm. Before I got Star Trek, which was my first published role-playing game, when yeah. I was younger than that, mm-hmm. I had the basics down of I understood that you... From hearing about D&D and stuff, I understood mm-hmm. the gist of you have stats and you roll dice, and I just invented mm-hmm. all my own games. My very first games prior to Star Trek, which was my, once again my first published game, were all homebrews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, we kind of had that a little bit of that. Our first introduction to D&D when I was like nine was the dungeon board game with the exclamation point at the end. <laughs> and we had it for like a month and I played it daily because it was my brother's game. Technically, he owned it. He bought it with his own money and all that. It was older brother, six years older than I am. And uh, so he had bought all this game. And then he his by the end of the first month, my dad had gotten that hint that it might be the devil's work and all that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, back then. And so he bought it for my brother and threw it away. That's int- I never I heard about that extending to board games. Right. And it was it was mostly because it was that it was at the time and he learned his lesson much later and he's completely changed his tune. But when we lost that. I mean, I, I was addicted to that that idea, that feel, and so my brother You're addicted to Satan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were completely. I was indoctrinated. Indoctrinated. I was gone. Yeah. Uh, I was looking for the witchcraft books. Yeah. Um, it was when they walked into the room and saw you guys huddled around this board game, taking turns vomiting blood on it, <laughs> candles around, yes. and you know, chanting. No, Where did um, you get the baby. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, after that, I my brother started running. You know, started getting us into storytelling games but we had very little rules mm. when i picked up my first 3.0 book when i was borrowing some from the library they had a collection that we could get to uh, wonderful librarians are awesome it was amazing to see a book and so it didn't seem so odd to me to have this this book with the rules and all that kind of stuff because i already had the feeling of the storytelling yeah so i didn't have to learn what is a rpg and and what's the storytelling elements because i mean we'd already done that so it was kind of weird to going into that. But first edition and second edition, I went through those books later. And I was like, how would you ever figure out these books? 
because it was right. so terribly written. It was written as a <laughs> as a war game, yeah, with a little bit of storytelling yeah. elements. So it was a lot of rules, and yeah. they were terribly written. And I think I figured out the other big difference. I didn't have friends close by or siblings that were close in age. Yeah, I was by myself up on a hill. Yeah. So, so well, okay. Totally feel you. Not that I yeah. lived it, but I can picture what mm-hmm. it would be like. Yeah, because like, you had a brother that you were able to play BattleTech with. And yeah. I had my brother was uh, twelve years older than me, I think. Well, yeah, I had my brother, and then there was Chad. There was this yeah. guy named Neil, and then later on, we picked up like Mike and Kevin and Tim and, blah, and some yeah. other people. Because like, I had friends, but they were in town. Yeah, mm-hmm. my parents wouldn't let me walk two miles into town. Oh yeah, yeah, I was within six blocks of the library, so it was a fantastic time. Well, I wonder if that's some though of how I learned role playing games was it wasn't just an oral influence of having heard stories about D&D that already gave me a mm. framework of what D&D is. So I wasn't starting maybe completely from zero. And you watched the D&D cartoon. No, actually I didn't. Oh. <laughs> but then the... I wasn't allowed to. Mm. But then the second thing that I think might have helped is having those other people to play with. You kind of build upon the ideas and you get a chance to try. It's like when you're reading, I don't know, a book on how to do anything. Whether it's you're trying to learn a handicraft or you're trying to learn how to program or whatever it is, it's great to read a little bit and then try it and then build on to what you're doing and things like that. And I wonder if having people to bounce it off of, I could get thus far in the book mm-hmm. and then be like, okay, let's try making characters and see where yeah. this goes. And since we were kids, it didn't matter how terrible it was. It was always great. Right. Everything was great. And we had hours and hours, days, weeks, months. Like, yeah. time was endless back then. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It was like picking up a mechanics book and sitting there and, like, opening up the book trying to figure out how to fix a car problem. Yeah, because it doesn't start it. You grab, like, one of those mechanics books. Like, let's say yep. the Chilton Guide. Yep. For anyone who knows what a Chilton Guide is. I don't know if they still make them or not. But it used to be, at least for my dad, when he bought a car, he bought the Chilton Guide to go with it. Mm-hmm. And the Chilton Guide, for anyone who doesn't know what it either is or was, once again, I don't know if they still make them or not. We have YouTube now for this. <laughs> it, it was basically a book that was designed. It's like if you got a 1983 Chevrolet Chevette, mm. you got the 1983 Chevrolet Chevette Chilton Guide. And it was this big mm-hmm. old thick-ass book. It was about the size of like a full-print dictionary. And it worked you through... This is the mechanics of the car. Here's how to troubleshoot problems. Here's how to do different pairs. If you want to swap out the brakes, here's how you do it. Things like that. But one of the things that those books did not do is it didn't start you off with, okay, here's what a car is. (laughs) Here's the concept of internal combustion. And here's the concept of a drivetrain. And here's the concept of what a differential gearbox is and why it's necessary it didn't deal with all. It just got right into, here's what we're going to do. Mm. And it kind of presupposed you already knew something. And I wonder, and this is pure theory here, but I wonder if some of the reason that game books are better organized is twofold. That first of all, gaming is such an oral tradition that the people who were putting out these games had already had to teach them to other people to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so they had already practiced the process of teaching someone from the ground up, this is what gaming is, this is what my game is, and here's how you play it. But then secondly, because you're dealing with people who are already communicators and storytellers to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so these are people where 
organizing these thoughts, even before the practice of telling the first person, is already something that they have some grasp on. They've got some background with. Mm. Yeah, that's what I, w- I was going to note is that, uh, you know, you can pull up a YouTube video now to s- and you can see the whole process happening as they're doing it. Um, as long as you pick the right, right vehicle. <laughs> yeah, pick the right vehicle and the right, the right list of things. But you have the right vehicle and the right video. You can, get, you can see the whole process from start to finish and all the details in between. If you don't, can't see the little detail that you're missing, what I found was, was wonderful when I was growing up is that we used the books, but it was, a lot of times it wasn't even the books that we were touching because we understood the concept of what we were doing in the beginning. We knew the mm-hmm. framework of storytelling. We knew the framework of what we were doing and the rules were there to facilitate our ability to tell the story and to create a game around the, the storytelling. That's something that just inspired me to become, to be to continue with gaming over the years. It's that you started out with a story and you put the rules to kind of hammer them in there and you fit them mm-hmm. into there, but they weren't, the be all end all. If I wanted to do that, I could pick up a board game. Yeah, like and I, I think that yeah. when role playing games first started, I mean, first started mm-hmm. way way back. I think it was the other way around. I think that they were playing war games, mm-hmm. and then they looked at them and said, "Well, there's this guy. There's this yep. one guy of three hundred. Mm-hmm. What's his thing? Why is he yeah. doing this?" And so they they pulled story out of the rules that are a war game. If you listen to the stories from those old war, oh, those old gamers, that's exactly where Gary Gygax and mm-hmm. some of those guys came up with the idea to write these rules around this with storytelling. Is they would they were playing war games, they were playing these little miniatures games, and they had a hero in that group because they really liked that guy and how he was painted. Right, it wasn't had nothing. To do. I mean, <laughs> he just they, keeps rolling really well. Yeah, he's yeah. rolling really well. He keeps doing stuff. He keeps winning. Mm-hmm. What's his background? Yeah, and they're just joking around. Oh, that's yeah. Bob the Bob the Barbarian. He's a you know his ah his parents died and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> my favorite parents. example of that is when we were running. Uh, what was the dungeon game that we used to play? The one with nickels, Dungeon Quest, or something. Yeah, what Dungeon was Quest. What was it called? There was one fig that was a Hero goblin. Hero Quest. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah it was, Hero, it was Quest. Hero Quest. We had one fig that was a goblin. He was supposed to have a knife, but the knife was busted off. So it looked like he had a handful of nickels. <laughs> that became Nichols the Goblin. And Nichols right. rolled well. And yeah. he became, when you put him on the table, it's like, oh, no, it's Nichols. Yeah. And <laughs> right? if that, let's say role-playing games didn't exist. right? We're sitting here and we develop stories based on what's going on, on how each character behaved and what the monsters were doing. And every time Nichols showed up, he rolled really well and whatnot. And I have to imagine that if we went on to make the role-playing game in the setting that putting some kind of doing the old boxing trick mm-hmm. of putting a roll of nickels in your hand. I guess it wouldn't be nickels. It might be like a metal bar or mm-hmm. something, but putting that in your hand would absolutely be a goblin weapon. and would probably be a trope for decades thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we only finally got pole arms out of D and D and in oh. mass because Gary Gygax loved his pole arms, but yeah. Good God, the charts of pole hard. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, there was a war game. I know, I, mean, that, that I was, know, but holy they're historians. Yeah, well, it, I mean, you'd expect there to be a couple. Like, no. Know, it's, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, I'm thinking second edition in particular. Right. Second edition in particular. The list of pole okay, arms. So and of, then the stats were all pretty similar. But if you went to the descriptions, it laid out for you in detail. So it never made sense to me anyway. It's like, okay, you're in the army. Like medieval army, King Arthur's court, maybe you're a Charlemagne's knight or something. 
and you go off on your adventure to war with 40,000 of your closest friends, and you've got a Bill Gizmir. Makes <laughs> perfect sense. So you are in King Arthur's court, and you go on your knight-errant quest to go save so-and-so with your 30-foot-long polearm. I mean, you can't even get out the door. It's, you can't go into taverns with it. Why the God hell is this in the corner? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just like the, the orcs are like, What's that guy with the big-ass stick? I mean, he's so far away, but I certainly see his... Oh, here comes the stick. Here comes, oh, crap, he's lowering it. <laughs> he missed. Well, he's charging. He'll get to us in like an hour, so it's all good. And then you get into a fight in a bar. Right. And you're suddenly using it. Yeah. How did you're, you get this thing? You're using an you eight, it at the table? An 18-foot-long well, halberd. That's how you clear the bar. Right. You just go one swing and you're done. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> just watch out. You just have to worry about the gnomes and the uh, you know the halflings. They yeah, can dodge everything. Shot, but... yeah. <laughs> so yeah, start a leg level. Mm-hmm. Kneecap everyone. The larger humanoids are done, and the yeah. everyone, the little ones are beheaded. And there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, you're right, though. I, the, some of the things that I could tell would be fascinating... To a historical war gamer. Right. But, right. like, within, if you looked at the chart of war, I mean, there really was not much rules it distinction is 1974, between them. And you're the hottest geek on the block. Because you can name 57 different varieties of pole arms and what era <laughs> in warfare they were from. Yeah. By heart. I mean, exactly. okay, that's pretty cool in a way. But short but... swords are short swords. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Short, yeah. Swords, short swords are short swords. Short swords are short sword. You know, it doesn't really yeah. matter what kind of a short long sword. sword. Yeah. Okay. It is a sword that is long. What What are we talking about? <laughs> here? Uh, doesn't matter. It's the stabby metal thing. But guess what? I've got a man catcher, and we got to go in intricate detail about that. <laughs> I've got a bill hook. It's going to be great. <laughs> I've got pictures of it. Something D and D ought to represent, and it doesn't. And I'm sure it does in splat books. But I'm talking like back when the game was still like that. That it was still sort of shedding its war game roots. Mm was the unusual mechanics of certain weapons. Like, for example, the fact that a Kopesh has a hooked part to it, or flat part to it. This Kopesh is a, it's an, a sword. Egyptian sword. It's an Egyptian sword. And for anyone who's never seen one, I'll link a picture in the show notes. But the gist of it is... Watch Ben Hur. So you have a, a curved blade, like you would with a, like a scimitar. But then, instead of going to the hilt, so you, okay, the front's curved... Then it stops, turns 90 degrees, goes up, turns 90 degrees again, and then that's where it connects to the actual part you hold. And so, okay, so it comes out of your hand, turns down, goes 90 degrees, and then turns up into the blade. And the idea was that that edge there, that corner existed. So when you were fighting somebody, you could put the sword over their shield, Mm -hmm. pull it back, and either have one of your buddies then go in for the stab or you yourself could thrust the Kopesh forward over the shield mm-hmm. and into the person. And I always found it interesting that when they had these weapons, some of them did have the distinct properties of the weapons. They could entangle, or they could do this, mm-hmm. or they could do that. But in many cases, they didn't. Right. So it's like you're going to go through the detail to have 85 pole arms, but really only a couple of them have unique mechanics to them yeah. beyond maybe a tiny difference in the damage or something. Mm. Right. And but that it, all takes place in their head. Yeah. They get it. Well, yeah. Because they're the polearm guy. And, and so, <laughs> and, and that, yeah. And that's yeah. where stories come from. Right. That's I, why yeah. he carries 
I can pull a guy off a horse with a bill hook because I know what a bill hook is. Yeah. And, right. this and is if why... you're a game master and you don't, why the fuck are you a game master? <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I carry an eight foot pike and not an eight foot spear. Right. Exactly. And in your mind, that totally matters. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> totally different. I think you're I think you're putting way too much uh impetus on these uh this war gamers that they have all these they were used to rules of mint rules. Yeah. So they didn't have they may have had those as descriptions. Mm-hmm. But when you had a have an army of you know all your lined up guys, yeah. your specific mini, this one mini had exact rules for it, and there was probably twenty of them. Right. But they had very specific rules for them. So like they could flavor it. They were trying to flavor mm-hmm. this they didn't want to create rules for every single one of those kind of things because they're used to dealing with armies yeah. and having to memorize all of the rules because you had this giant mm. battle that you were dealing with. And if you didn't know the rules of this one guy, he could kick your tail right. you know, across the across the board because you missed up and you messed up on your tactics. Mm-hmm. They're all tactics based. Yeah. So I bet that the Halberts were like them trying to try out this idea of adding flavor and mm. and and. Uh, something. I mean, you I know. think that they were just halberd nerds. <laughs> that they've been like in college. Too. You know, they they have a bachelor in history and medieval history, war, medieval <laughs> warfare history. The and minor in medieval armaments. Yeah, yeah. and they're they're, they're just paper. Yeah. Minor in halberds. <laughs> minor in halberds. <laughs> their yeah. big paper, not thesis, because it's just a bachelor's degree, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and their big paper was. You know, the history of Halvrids, you know, from the fall of the Roman Empire to the beginning of the Renaissance when warfare got boring. Well, and then and that's, that's their whole thing. We have that in some games now. Yeah. So, like, you look at something like GURPS, where you have every possible type of gun ever has stats for it, versus another game where your gun does 2d6. Right. You, you got big, you, medium, and small gun. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You have mm-hmm. the gun nerds. That right. want everything to be represented, yeah. Because mm-hmm. there is a difference to them between the two. Mm-hmm. When mechanically it does the exact same thing, just call it gun and add the flavor, right? If you're the gun guy, just describe. One of the, the things flavor. that's always kind of struck me as weird about that is if you want to be that pedantic with guns. Yes, there is a distinction in the ballistics from one gun to the next. And there's recoil, there's all kinds sure. of things you can add in. And certainly the more varied the guns get, the more distinct those ballistics become. Okay, a twenty two pistol has radically different mm-hmm. properties than, let's say, a .30-06 rifle. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get that. I'm not saying we shouldn't make those distinctions. But within guns that are relatively similar. All right, so for example, and I know some people are going to freak at me daring to say this, but it's the truth. Oh, I'm waiting for somebody to write me that they didn't use Bill Gizmier's in Charlemagne's court. (laughs) There's people frothing right now. Well, here, let me go ahead and save you from something. (laughs) If someone's going to correct the pronunciation of that, when I was playing one of the Final Fantasy games, because we oftentimes don't use medieval terms, and so when you see them, if you've not heard them said before... It's the reader's curse. It's the reader's curse. You you Mm -hmm. know the word... But you're not sure how it's pronounced. Oh, I had that for comic book names. I used to get excited when there'd be a cartoon about a comic book. Yeah. So I could hear how the name was actually pronounced. <laughs> well, I was, so I was playing a Final Fantasy game. I think it was nine. And Carla starts cracking up. And I'm like, what's funny? She's like, you just bought a queer ass. Queer <laughs> <laughs> ass? Okay. Yeah. Queer ass. <laughs> She's like, Huh, yeah, I could see how you get queer ass from that. <laughs> but no, I've... Hey, you got a gorge. Gorget. <laughs> you got a gorget. <laughs> gorget. <laughs> but, uh, 
Okay, so within, let's say, three guns that are relatively similar. In fact, there's a lot of models of guns you can get where they will sell the same model gun in these three calibers because they are sufficiently similar, which mm-hmm. is the 9mm, the 40, and the 357 SIG, not to be confused with 357 Magnum. All right. Now, is there a distinction between the ballistics of those three rounds? The answer is yes. But do you know what's more significant is the distinction between types of 9mm rounds than there is between the 9mm and, say, the 357 SIG. So, for example, if you have a 9mm, let's just go with the simple stuff. If you have a 9mm ball round versus a 9mm uh, hollow point, there's radically yeah. different properties. They do different things. Yeah, they do They very... kill you in different ways. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and some people might be like, well, that's not important. I mean, you're, you're dead either way. It's like, you know what? You're right. But it depends on the game. Yeah. Or maybe you have armor. This right. is one that yeah. actually yeah. penetrates armor versus this one right. doesn't. Yeah, precisely. This armor works against this type of a, bullet, but not that type of bullet. A full metal jacket round will do better against a hard target, generally speaking, than right. a yeah. hollow point will. Because the hollow point flattens out and spreads out the ballistic impact. And the question comes up of, are you playing a game where combat is like filling out your tax form? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or are you playing a game where you've just... You roll some dice yeah. and you move See, on. And that's I mean, the thing. That's, that's right. the, You'll notice in Skies yeah. of Glass. There's big gun, small gun, and that's about Precisely. It. <laughs> there's basically three or four categories of guns. Okay, now some of them do have unique properties. Like if they have something like spread. Okay, I do yeah. deal with that differently. But out, medium and small and cone. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Right. Sure, yeah. Throw in some others, like yeah. there is automatic Explosive and semi-automatic. And and special effect lighty zappy. Yeah, and there are some, yeah, all right, exactly. But the point is, these are broad categories. The only reason I want to know what the type of gun is, is because being a survival game, if you have a 357 Magnum, but you find 45 ACP rounds, you can't put those in your gun. Right. Well, and that came right. up in the last Saw game. Yeah. They all went and raided the police station. And, and it was a different it yeah, was caliber of ammunition yeah. than what you were using. But even then, say you're running Skies of Glass and you're not a gun guy. Yeah. And the rules are not filled with all this pedantic gun stuff. You can still even hand wave that. You could just say, okay, we raided the police station. What do we got, Game Master? It's like, um, let's say you got 50 rounds of ammunition, but... You know, I know you guys have all different kind of guns, like Joe has a shotgun and you have a pistol and you have a rifle. We'll say between you, divide up 15 of those and that's the bullets you have. And then, usable, the, yeah. and then the rest yeah. either aren't usable or aren't usable by your guns. Right. And so we're going to put that as, quote, scrap the money of the game. I'm just right. saying if I was going to be pedantic with guns, yeah. that's where my pedantry would begin. Mm-hmm. It, it would not be in differentiating a Glock 40 from a Sig 40. It would be in differentiating a Glock full metal jacket from a Glock hollow point or the grain weight of the rounds. If I, if, if, which I don't, but if I wanted to go down that road, that's where I'd do it. I should get a plus one to all hit because I do my own reloads and I count each grain. And you take, (laughs) and you take that kind of, I I file the spurs off the bullet. So I should get another plus one. And and that can happen. You have your players who come in and think, oh, I've got a ton of XYZ knowledge and I should apply it to this. And that's great. But they have to also realize that as soon as you start applying it to my own shots, I as a player is shooting them with this specific round in this way, and it's going to give me bonuses because of that. Then the enemies can look at those things and uh, you know use the you know your long distance you know ammos and your short distance ammos and your you know your dragon fire for right. vampires or something. You yeah, know, I mean, I think it was Chad that once said, 
sure, you could have a bazooka, but that means they have a bazooka. Mm-hmm. Or they have access to, or... Right, right. right. Kale, did you play back as far as second edition D&D? I played a bit of second and first. Yeah. Okay, so Not, it's been, I didn't play during their heydays. I played afterwards right. with people like, who hey, had... Look at this crazy 20-year-old box. Let's try Well, that. actually, I played with people who were, like played in those days and were trying to rehash their history and I was like I want to play that and I so I joined in their games at some of the game stores so there was one rule talking about all this weird pedantry mm-hmm. and rabbit holes and such there was one set of rules in second edition that I actually really liked and wish had gotten used more which is weapons had a type of damage so this was mm-hmm. piercing this was slashing this was yep. blunt and different armors still has it. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, but they, they don't make that. nearly as big a deal out mm. of it. But there was an optional rule in second edition. In fact, I think it was in the Dungeon Master's Guide. It wasn't even in the player's handbook where you could modify the armor based on the weapon being used against it. Okay, so for example, something like chain was really good. I'm just making this up because I don't remember, but it's really good against piercing weapons but sucked against bludgeoning weapons. Whereas right. something like Padded got a bonus against bludgeoning weapons, but sucked against piercing weapons. And so the nature of the armor, the con- the construction of the mm-hmm. armor, actually would be taken into account when you were trying to figure out how effective it was versus a weapon. Now, uh, I just, it as also, a game master who runs D&D, I don't want to track that yeah. shit. Now, I mean, I think it's yeah. hundred different weapons. Well, the, I think it's pretty cool when... Monsters have things like that, like yeah. a skeleton. Damage, damage resistance. Yeah. A skeleton, for example, right. piercing doesn't do nearly the amount of damage a bludgeon does. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. But I don't want to get into the armor. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the occasional thing is interesting. Like, they fought hellhounds and something else, some fire lava thing, and they started shooting fire at it. It was like, hey, thanks. You know, yeah. that, that yeah. feels great. <laughs> and. Feels it like home. Feels like home. And, and yeah, and, and I do like the broad general damage resistances right. that make sense. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a cool, it's cool in concept. It is very cool in right. concept to say I have a piercing weapon that, you know, like is some armor. Pier- I forget what they're called. They're, they're like the, the spikes that made, they're made to punch through uh, mm-hmm. plate armor. There's a specific name for them and stuff, but I forget what it is because it's weighted, not halberd. Weight, there's weighted spears and right. whatnot you can get. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's a cool concept. It's also very historical. It's a neat yeah. concept, but I, I imagine, you know, it's like I'm running a whole bunch of enemies. Everybody has their initiative. I'm running mm-hmm. my initiative order. I have to, they're, they're casting spells, so there's different status effects than different guys. I'm running all these different kinds of hit points that are going on. My guys have different spell effects and the spell names in the monster manual do not reference back right. to a page number I can look at to look up the spell. And since I'm using a book, I can't click on it to go to it. <laughs> spell cards. Spell cards yeah, are spell cards Yeah, are all great. my players are using spell cards. I yeah. should probably get some anyway. But the, that's, <laughs> the spell cards don't have all the details, though. Like some sometimes they, some of them do, but some of them don't. Some of them don't even tell you what the save is against. Yeah, them. the ones mm-hmm. I've got do. But with that, I'm like, okay, well, I. I hit them and I roll this much damage. I'm like, are you using a Warhammer or a Longsword? Uh, what is a Beck de Corbin? <laughs> what is a queer ass? <laughs> what is a queer, like, look through it. Okay, so a Beck de Corbin is both bludgeoning and piercing? Okay. It depends on how you're using it. Depends it depends on how you're, yeah, how were you using this? <laughs> well, with the right. stabby in? Okay, so piercing. All right, go back. You are fighting a... Oh, you're fighting a ghost. No armor anyway. 
Never mind. So you know where I like that? Yeah. I like that in video games where yes. the math is being done exactly. for me. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, though, I, this is one of the things I, I played at the Fear of the Con. They had uh, Sergeant Dan's Harnmaster game. Mm-hmm. I came into the group, and I didn't know Harnmaster at all. I played it because I, I wanted to check it out and see what it was like. Plus Sergeant Dan. Okay, I'm going to pause yeah. you right here before you continue the story. Because every time I hear the name Harnmaster, and it's probably because it ends in master and starts like with a word that sounds like harness, mm-hmm. I think BDSM. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, a, it's a, Harn is the world. That's why it's Harn Master. Master I always Harn. just I know, like I know. A, a half-naked <laughs> barbarian walking around in big strap. Oh, they things. have that. Oh. Yeah, they, I'm sure they do. <laughs> but um, but they, they also have, have specific uh, armor classes for each of the pieces of armor. So but that's there are two story. classes, the Harn Master and the Harn Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be the Harn Bottom. I, I always think of the maps because they're a ridiculous Power number of maps Power they have. <laughs> but, for example, they, these guys went in. There is a ridiculous amount of detail that they go into on armor class armor types all those kind of things Harnmaster is really yeah. crunchy really crunchy but every single one of these guys who were playing it knew it like the back of their hand sure and you'd state off the thing that you're going to do oh i want to stab at them and you'd roll the number and you roll this and you roll that and you'd know exactly how you hit them and what way you hit them and it would do a different amount of damage based on where you hit how much armor they had and all that which i know it seems really crunchy but they were doing it in the like math in the back of their head. Yeah. So once yeah. you get used to a system like that, so back in the day when we had first edition, second edition, you only had one game. You didn't have yeah. 30 games that you could pick up and go, oh, I want to play uh, Vampire this week, or I, I want to play, you know, GURPS, or I want to play, you know, some story game. They didn't have that. They had one game. Well, they, that's yeah, so, all. they would invest in that one game well, so that everyone had memorized every rule so they knew all the weapons by heart. Yeah. yeah. And so I you go don't have to go to, question. Uh, probably the best superhero system i'd ever played in was uh you know at fear the con i played a champions game oh champions yeah champions is super crunchy has all these rules Mm -hmm. no but you get a guy that knows that system Mm -hmm. and he has their character sheets made with cheat sheets on it hire him and your taxes because that's what he's doing anyway yeah he knows what rules to do what rules not to do right and the system like that that covers it it can be a really fun system, but you have to know that stuff. But the well, players didn't need to know it okay, because the GM did. One of the things that has helped me when I run Battletech is the fact that I played the game for so long and knew it so well that things like that I could tally and do on the fly. That I could look and be like, well, you're, you got a large laser, you're at eight hexes, that's a plus this, minus this, plus this, minus this. You need to roll an eight or better. And it was, you know, I could just do it like that. But mm-hmm. I've hit this point where Battletech has gotten to be too much stuff. Mm. And I think I've just kind of reached a point where I have all the Battletech I want. <laughs> and when I open right, these yeah. books, it's like, oh, well, now we've got rotary auto cannons and heavy machine guns and snub nose PPCs. Why would you make a particle cannon snub nose? And you know, so it just uh, <laughs> so you can conceal it. <laughs> you've got you've got a 38 PPC special. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> and, you know, you've got various types of Gauss weapons. I still don't know why they don't have actual rail guns if you've got Gauss weapons. It just goes on and on and on like this. It's like, man, I just don't care anymore. Right. It's, yep. What was in the game through the time I stopped playing was very sufficient variety. This has just gotten silly. So when someone is designing a game, no one thinks of this, basically because I just thought this up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when someone's designing a game, you know, you guys are talking about the veteran players. 
Right. This is their one game they've been playing for years. Sure. Dan has played tons of games, run tons of games, but old school Battletech, that is your jam. Yeah. Right. So you can just boom, 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 whip off all the number stats. I can right. tell you off the top of my head that the Orion, original Orion, is an illegal design because it has a half ton of SRM4 ammo. So, I don't even know why I remember that. So let's put those people aside. You're not mm-hmm. making a game for those people. Right. Let's get back to something that we talked about way earlier in the episode here. The person who comes into the bookstore and doesn't know what a role-playing game is. Oh, mm-hmm. that's a cool cover. What is this? And they pick it up and they start reading it. And you can have a crunchy game that isn't going to scare people off. There's all different mm-hmm. kinds of people. But there is something that I like to call now because I just made it up. Reference per action. And what a references per action is, is, okay, it's combat time. We're, it's dice rolling time. And mm-hmm. Wayne says, all right, I want to stab this guy with my Beck de Corbin. All right. We are just starting out here. We played a little bit, so we're not completely you know useless at it. It's an action. Let's do it. First, we have to see what's the damage on Beck de Corbin and does it do piercing or slashing. That's a reference per the action. Okay, mm-hmm. now we need to see what is the guy. My guy is, has plate mail, so that means he has a resistance for slashing and bludgeoning. And that's, yes, that is true. It's pure, so that's two references per action. Wayne says, oh, remember, the paladin cast bless. So does he have to make a save, or do I just get the D4? Okay, that's another rest. Now we're up to three references yep. for this action. Sure. So for a new, not totally new, but for a newish non-veteran right. player... How many references per action does your game require? Yeah, yeah. and the effect that you're talking about there is discrete points of decision mm-hmm. that right. go into the final check. One of the things Cause, where... Well, because it's all... All role-playing games involve math and rolling. Yeah. Not, you're, not pull it out of your ass, you tell me games. Mm-hmm. It's an algebra equation. And Dan for Battletech, the, the, who, that's your wheelhouse, you know all the unknown variables. You know what yeah. the the algebra is right. for a new player for the you know Dungeons and Beck to Corbin game that I've just picked up and playing with Wayne here. I barely know the formula and I don't know all of the unknown variables and all the ref. We have to do all the references to get the x equals y equals z yeah. equals well, to yep. be able to get. So it this is why I think the best role playing games do one of two things in their presentation. One is either they do a really really good job. Of easing you into that. Mm-hmm. So you're learning it incrementally. And many of them will stop. Let's take Battletech. It's not the only one that does this. Mm-hmm. But Battletech is an example. Battletech, you have a basic set of rules. When you learn them up to that point, you they've built on them very well. You can sit down. You can play Battletech with the basic rules. And you can go back and get the intermediate rules. That mm-hmm. was exactly what I was going to point out. I didn't know Battletech did this. But I wish more games did that. Mm-hmm. You look at... Let's use the Indian Pathfinder. They both have starter boxes. Yep. The starter boxes have a pared down, tiny version of the rules that's just enough to start playing. And then when you've expanded past that, then you go to the full book. Mm-hmm. I wish more systems had those yeah. smaller intro things because well, I think they're good. And you know why they don't is because Pathfinder and D and D that people make it who makes D and D Hasbro was Wizard, yeah Wizards of Wizards of Coast, Coast yeah. They un- they understand yeah. that they need to grow their sales, right. and that means not preaching to the converted. All these other role playing games that don't do that, where it's basically like you buy the book because you generally know what's going on, you know what a role playing game is, and right. you can pick it up pretty fast. They're preaching to the converted. 
You look at something sure. like Wizards of the Coast. I mean, D&D in Stranger Things. Sure. Was that a product placement they paid for? Because if it was, that's f***ing outstanding. <laughs> that's right. really great. So, but the second thing I was going to say that I think can help is to provide some kind of visual reference. And that can occur in one of many forms. Lasers and Feelings, which is yeah. an incredibly simple role-playing game, still has a little flow chart mm-hmm. that you can work down of yes-no, yes-no decision points that ends at this is what you do. The Apocalypse Hacks, mm-hmm. plus obviously Apocalypse World itself. Yeah. Here's your character, here's the eight things you can do, and here's what may or may not affect those. It's right there in front of you. One of the reasons it's easier for me to follow the crunch of Battletech than Pathfinder is because of the fact that the map is that visual representation. I can look at the map and see almost every cue I need to see. If you can tell me your gunnery, okay, mm-hmm. so you you say, you know, I have a three plus. Negative two. Sure, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> so let's say you have, I don't know, three plus, four yeah. plus to hit, whatever it is. I don't have to remember to account for all these different things because they're there. I can see there's distance between the miniatures. I can see there's intervening woods. I can see that this is going on or that's going on. And so I can simply evaluate based on the visual cues of the map what it is I need to account for. I don't have to remember things. And this is where I realize some games have helped this with like tokens you put down. But I don't have to remember that, well, okay, the Locust ran this fast, so it's already got a a three-point penalty to be hit because of speed. But it also has... Locust mirror image and locust blast <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and all these things, and you're using a, a back to Corbin There's against a locust. It. <laughs> yeah. There's a locust on the field. Yeah, I'm retreating. Right. <laughs> well, you don't have your back to Corbin, and, and you don't have your paladin. Blast. And did you remember that it has a queer ass? I know, <laughs> so, right? You don't. You just don't know. So yeah, you're going to retreat. And by the way, for anyone who's not following that joke, there's a piece of armor from the sure. Middle Ages called a cuirass. That or curious, a curious, curious is, yeah. You, there's a couple different pronunciations of it. Queer ass is a butchering of that, so that's what we're making jokes about. But yeah, I mean, it's like I said, the map is a visual representation of what the flashcard or the quick reference mm-hmm. from something like an apocalypse hack would be for me. Yeah, and it could, even a game like Battletech could potentially have this if they wanted to, specifically different types of armor. If it had this type of armor does better against Goss rifles, yeah, it does you would now. start getting into that issue that you're describing. It does now, and that's part of yeah. why I don't and, like it. It's, and that and the reason why I don't like it is, is it increases your references per action. Yeah. Because if you, if you don't have it memorized, that means you, you don't know, you gotta look it up. Well and, and then you go to look it up, does the book have an index? Well some of them don't. Which is what <laughs> that's a pet peeve of mine. Right. But that's also why I love uh, I love GM screens. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. put them up. I don't use them. Well, They're really handy reference references. Cards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's yep. that's something that I also don't like because, as you were suggesting, Battletech does now have different types of mm-hmm. armor. And I'm not just talking about the older concepts like Ferro Fiber. Because all Ferro Fiber did was change the weight of the armor, not its behavior under damage. Until you got special weapons that affected Ferro Fiber in different ways. Yeah. Right. But But the thing is, when you start talking about that, that's not represented on the map. If you tell me I have a 4-plus gunnery and I'm firing a PPC at this range, the fact that this mech has a certain type of armor on it, I have no cue for that. Mm-hmm. I have to either have that memorized or the person who's playing that mech has to remind me 
or if I'm the GM, mm-hmm. I have to pull it sheet out and remind myself. And how far does that go? Well, the mech also has a shield. And what position is the shield in? And blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. And it's just like, man, I, I don't need all this crap. It's the well, game. And, and then imagine that you're a new player. Yeah. You're new to role playing games. Yep. Your group is new to role playing games. And you walked into that bookstore and you saw it. And then you started playing it. And then you're like, oh my God, guys. It, oh, and my a- favorite thing that happens in video games that have this level of thing. I haven't had it happen in a role playing game yet, but I can easily see it happening. You spec out a character. This looks awesome. I've got self body shield that works against lasers. And you walk into your first combat and everyone has knives. Right. And oh, you have no hey, idea Wayne. that you've specced your character to be completely useless Wayne, because there's too much stuff. The slow knife pierces the shield. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, that, that happened a lot in first edition uh, and second edition games and things like that. If you didn't, and even some in third and 3.5, if you didn't build your character yeah. right in, in level one, by the time you hit level 10 or level 15 or level, especially yeah. level 20, you could be completely wanting to rebuild your character from level one just oh, yeah. because. That By the time was you got to a certain point, you were useless, literally. That was one of my pet peeves with a lot of D20 systems. The older D&D, as well as Mutants and Masterminds, some of the things like that, mm-hmm. were the feet tracks where you yeah. had to sit down and map out what you wanted to do. Yeah, Because if you didn't take them in the right order, you were going to reach it, these points and not be able to do what you wanted to and do. And again, imagine you've never played before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wizards and Pathfinder 2 is certainly... Although I'm not a Pathfinder player, maybe I'm wrong about it, but... Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. They understand that they cannot rely on veteran players pulling in new players. Because that's what the entire industry relied on for 40 years, and they understand that they can't rely on that. They have to bring in new players to keep the businesses going. So that means that they have to do uh, whatever that, there's a YouTube or Twitch thing with Critical Role. Critical Role, yeah, that's a Critical Role. And, and, you know, that gets a lot of new players in. And you notice they're the two companies that do the organized play, so you don't have to get a group. They do new player-friendly rule sets. The rules that are in the main books are organized to where a new player can kind of like understand mm-hmm. you don't have to anymore plan your feats out for the next right. 30 levels and that sort of thing but they're not watered down new player sort of games they're, they're no. not like baby's first role-playing game or anything like that and i i wish more game companies understood that our hobby will die if you don't do things like that if you just sell to people who are converted and hope that they bring new people in, it's not good for the hobby. But when you look at what a lot of these companies are, Chad, you've made games and you put them out there. That's right. You are what some of these companies are. The one or two person... Not making any money? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The one or two person that's put it together that doesn't have a budget for things like that. Have you done any outreach with your games? Uh, Not with my games, but I've done outreach with this podcast. Yes, with the podcast. But you as a... Not as a podcaster, you as a... Game, game creator. I'm yeah. not a game designer. A game designer is somebody who is a professional, who has a job, who that's their that's their thing. Okay. I have but some not, ideas wait, wait, wait. that I put on. So that's PDF. not the case for a lot of these games that come out. There are the couple of companies that can pay people this. A lot of the games being designed and being released that we look at, this isn't their day job. Right. And yeah. that's why they can't afford to do some of the, what really needs to happen to get people into the hobbies. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at some of the games like Blades in the Dark. Right. 
I'm pretty sure that's not his day job. There's oh, no, a reason a that designer, but he does do other things. Yeah. Exactly. That he has a day job and then this was his side project. That's what a lot of these games companies mm-hmm. are now. I mean, they're not all the evil hats, the Paizos, right. the mm-hmm. you know, the Wizards of the Coast. They're just people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and we we have a lot. That's one of the reasons why I've seen we see a lot of the um independent small games that are very small short books have become popular that, you know, that you're going to start seeing some of the very simple rule systems, simple games like fate it's been, became really popular because it's really easy to figure. I mean, it's got some compl- complexity, but it's not that difficult to play a fate game to pick mm-hmm. it up and learn it. It gets a little confusing when you're not thinking about storytelling elements. Yeah. But so is D and D. I mm-hmm. mean, if you're thinking right. about it, I mean, if you're I mean, getting if, into if the you, storytelling, it's it not connected bit. to the concept. It's right. a new concept. Exactly. Regardless of the concept, but the, the rule complexity is much lower. And they've seen those games come over the last, you know, especially in the last 10 years. Right. They've boomed huge amounts of, uh, of, of different games that are not complex, that don't have a lot of stat numbers, crunchiness, mm-hmm. because not everyone is that. Almost every game that I've, every time that I've played a D&D game, there has been one or two players in there that are your number crunchers. Right. And they were the guys you went to with your game, co- your character concept. <laughs> and you said, okay, I got this character concept will it work make and then effective and then help and then help me make <laughs> right. me effective especially when you're playing something was going you knew was going to last you to 20th level or you were starting at a higher level we had one guy who was really good at that or two guys and so we would go to those guys okay these are my base stats base idea you know and then help me tweak this mm-hmm. and they would go through that and i think every game that i've played with there's been somebody like that around i tend to go towards the story side. Right. So I'm the story guy who comes in there is like, Ooh, I got this cool idea I want to come up with and play. Mm-hmm. And then my friend will tell me that that's terribly ineffective. But then I just, I have to figure out a way to make my concept still fit a right. effective character. That's where the fun comes in for me. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say I'm a rules guy, mm-hmm. but I enjoy playing with the rules. Sure. I like taking a concept that should not work and then going to the rules and finding a way to make it work. I started doing this in the MMO communities when I, City of Heroes, I would take the Defender, mm-hmm. the pure support class that you're never supposed to be by yourself, and I would make a solo character out of that because right. people said you couldn't. Groups hate him. <laughs> I, yeah. I like doing that with game systems, too. Finding the, sure. this should not work. That's why I like Bards. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about how ineffective Bards they are. are great. In 5th edition, man. Yeah, 5th yeah, edition, well, they're great. Whatever anyone has. Any edition, they're great because they're the role-playing nexus. They're the ones who... They can be. Yeah, they can they're be. the ones who... They know no. stuff. They know people. People mm-hmm. like them. Or they could be really annoying, uh, depending oh, on how they're played. But yeah. yeah, they could be... They can be potential for high amount of role-playing. Same right. with some of the wizards and some of those kind of characters because they'd rather not get into combat yeah. if they can help it because others could yeah. get stabbed. What I liked about them is they were... The Swiss Army knife. Yes, I could get. Yeah. I could do a little bit of everything. I might not be as effective at any one thing that the other player does, but when those other characters go down, I can step into that I role. Mean, people who complain about someone playing a bard in their group pre fifth edition, before you know whatever, like a third mm-hmm. edition bard, whatever, they would complain about it. What they're complaining about is not the bard. They're complaining that we are constructing together. The perfect murder hobo killing group. You're talking to my XP. <laughs> right. That's exactly. Right. You are the anchor. You need to make something more stabby or tough or supporty. Not somebody who's 
plus one on my loot. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're gonna you're gonna play a murder machine, and that's how it's gonna be. Right. And it's like, uh, I mean, hey, if that's your game, whatever. Right. You're playing wrong. I'll say, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, you're having fun of a sort, I guess. But yeah, yeah, that that's really what they're not complaining about bards. They're complaining about how you're boat anchoring their XP per minute. Okay. Yeah. I have to tell a small gaming story from yesterday because it involves a bard. <laughs> okay, this so, is what we're going to close on. Okay, so <laughs> yesterday I was running a D&D Adventure League. Never run it before, first time running Adventure League, uh-huh. first time doing organized play. Anyway, they get to this fight. They're fighting a hippogriff. The hippogriff gets down to like four hit points, and the bard does vicious mockery. Oh. Which roll, you roll a D4 for damage, mm-hmm. and you are... Making fun of this thing and it does psychic damage. <laughs> he mm-hmm. killed the hippogriff by by telling him, "You've got an ugly wig." <laughs> <laughs> that is what a bard and it could do. Just couldn't go off. <laughs> yes, and it just He's dropped right. dead. <laughs> Sticks and stones, my ass. <laughs> I could not have asked that for is... a better way for that fight to end. Because he rolled a yeah. four on the d four, mm-hmm. it had yep. four hit points. He Those insulted it to death. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will destroy your queer ass. That's <laughs> so, right. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, I don't think there's anything in the show notes, but you read them if you want. I'll probably put timestamps or something. It's like a bonus episode because we actually had I, a real topic. That I think it there. probably is a bonus episode. So, anyway. Hey, I didn't derail it this time. So, that's true. I do blame him. His presence here destroyed <laughs> us. Well, he's sitting in Brodor's chair. So, that's the blame. Oh, is that what the smell is? <laughs> yeah. That. And get, wait till you get up. It's all sticky. <laughs> so, thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. See ya. Yeah.